Welcome back to another episode of the Trees and Lines podcast. On this episode, Bob Allen, manager of the vegetation management for Eversource, New Hampshire, joins us to talk about his utilities engagement of local schools to attract more people to the industry, how he sees urban roadside forest decline affecting his company, and how they are solving for bugs and diseases and everything else happening to the utility forest. Have a listen. Hope you enjoy. Bob, welcome. It's good to have you with us. Appreciate your uh, joining us for today's podcast. Thanks, Bob. Happy to do so. Yeah, appreciate that. Uh, we thought maybe we'd start off like we always do and ask you to, uh, you know, give us a little bit about your background and uh, a little bit about the program you run up there in New Hampshire. Sure thing. Uh, so um been doing tree work of some form or another since 1978, uh, 45 years. Uh, started as a ground man, laborer, uh, climber, bucket operator, um, working on private work and also with the municipal, the city of Springfield, Massachusetts. Uh, graduated from Stockbridge School of Agriculture with a degree in arboriculture and park management. Um, worked for the city for about 10 years and then uh, came on board with what used to be known as Western Mass Electric, which was part of Northeast Utilities. Uh, Northeast Utilities uh merged with uh NSTAR back in 2013 and became Eversource. Uh but I worked for Western Mass Electric for about 5 years as a permission specialist and also a arborist. Went into Connecticut Light and Power, one of our other predecessor companies and worked there for 17 years as an arborist and a senior arborist. 2009 after the ice storm of 2008 uh, in New Hampshire, the fellow who had been running the program up here uh, chose that he had other things to do with his life instead of go through another storm like that. So the job was open. I came up from Connecticut and became supervisor of uh, vegetation management for public service in New Hampshire. Upon the merger of NSTAR and Northeast Utilities, I then uh, became manager of New Hampshire and Massachusetts for five years. And then in 2018, I went back to just New Hampshire. And we have a manager in all three states now. So uh, been happy to be up here, and um, we have a really good program. Uh, I would say it's the class of our system up here, and uh, proud of it, proud of the team we have. Yeah, good. We're interested in learning about it. So Eversource is the biggest utility in New Hampshire, right? It is. It's uh, the largest in New England. Um, we Across three states, we uh, cover electricity, gas, uh, water, um, and we're involved in uh, wind energy as well. And you're over both transmission and distribution? I'm not currently. I'm just distribution in, okay. uh, in New Hampshire. Yeah, very good. Bob, you've lived through uh, lots of uh, mergers and acquisition activity. Um, what's that journey been like in terms of the constant realignment of vegetation management objectives and, and program nuances and that sort of deal, because there's been a lot of activity with uh, with your utility. Yeah, that's a great question, Tej, and, and certainly we've uh, we've learned to roll with the punches, as they say. Yeah, uh, veg management is always something that people wonder where it fits best, uh, and we've been in several different organizations through the years. Currently, we're in engineering under uh, asset management and process improvement. Uh, we switched in January of this year, January 23. Prior to that, we had been in operations services, uh, which uh, along with fleet, training, uh, 
and uh, Meter Technical uh, served all four operating companies. Uh, but this year, uh, we've aligned with engineering, which we've done that in the past as well. Uh, but I believe it's the right move for us. Uh, we are in a situation where the best things that can be done to improve reliability for customers are done through veg management and engineering. Uh, and if we're working together and looking to solve problems together, instead of um, not having that communication, that and we've been through that in the past when when you're not working, uh, or you know people like to use the term silos when you're working in a silo, uh, we're currently not in that situation. So engineering and uh, and veg are pretty closely aligned right now, and I'm very proud and happy about that. I know that uh, one of the things I've heard you talk about is that. Uh, the utility forest, or I guess the urban forest in general, is in decline. Uh, can you talk to us some about that? Sure. Uh, the roadside forest uh, in New England definitely is uh, is in, I wouldn't say trouble. It has had some decline. Uh, one of the issues is uh, New Hampshire and Maine kind of go back and forth between which one is the most forested state. Um, and depending upon how big our hazard tree budget is, I always try and go to number two if I can get all the bad trees out. But uh, currently, uh, we're probably number one or number two with Maine. However, uh, Connecticut's number five and Mass is number six. And you don't really think of that, uh, Connecticut and Massachusetts, as being uh, that highly forested or that fully forested. Um, one of the things that happened in New Hampshire and in New England overall, was uh, there was a lapse in agriculture, obviously, in the last 50 to 150 years. Uh, prior to that, it had been an agricultural area, all of New England, and most of it had been logged. So we're in a situation now where uh, we have even-aged roadside forest, multiple stems per acre. And I'm not a forester. I'm an arborist. But I've had to learn some of these terms because I look at what I'm managing every day and... Um, you're looking at uh, the possibility that it could be a very big decline coming soon if we don't find some way to manage some of these insects and diseases. Why would the decline be different roadside versus backlog rural? Eversource covers New Hampshire, Connecticut, and Massachusetts, as I said. And Massachusetts and Connecticut, by state law, have a tree warden for every town. So that tree warden is in charge of the trees that are within the town, taking town right away, the layout, whatever term you prefer to use. But there are public trees associated with the road. Um, in New Hampshire, we don't have a tree warden law. So, Phil, if you and I lived on a three-rod road, 16 and a half feet equals a rod, three rods is 49 and a half or arbitrarily 50 feet. If we lived across the street from each other, you and I would own 25 feet to the center of the road. So the trees that in Connecticut or Massachusetts right off the road would be considered public trees. In most cases in New Hampshire, they would be private trees. So one of the things about New Hampshire managing the roadside forest is that those trees, we're talking to the tree owner, whereas in Connecticut and Massachusetts, we're talking to the tree warden. Oh, that's um, interesting. Significant difference in the fact that you need to make... Uh, the conversation with the tree owner, so tree warden in Massachusetts and Connecticut, uh, individual property owner in New Hampshire, you need to figure out the best way to handle that tree uh, relationship. Um, in New Hampshire, we also have a situation where uh, perhaps you've heard our motto, live free or die, um, and we don't believe in taxing. Uh, so there's no sales tax for the most part. There's no income tax. Um how does that relate to the roadside forest? 
Well, for me, it relates to the fact that there's no funding for a town DPW or a forestry division to take care of the trees that are on the roadside. Um, as I said, most of them are owned by the private owner anyways, but uh, the town would have some um, some reason to maintain those. But they don't have any money to maintain them because there is no tax dollars coming in for that. Uh, we prefer to spend it on education and health care, which I think is probably important, uh, but I like the trees too. So um, the trees... Uh, the trees then become pretty much the utility's responsibility to to manage that roadside forest. So that's why, for me, the roadside forest is, is most important, is that it's kind of incumbent on me as the manager of the wires to also manage that forest. That dynamic with the homeowner, can you can you shed a little bit of light in terms of generally what is that engagement like with the population, with the customer base? Are, you know, are folks... They're not being taxed, so they also have more discretionary income. You know, what is their general sort of relationship with with you, your organization, and and their position on their on their forests? Sure, it's a great question too. I think um, I don't know about the discretionary income, uh, but Connecticut, Massachusetts, uh, they do have uh, a higher per capita income than New Hampshire. Uh, so uh, you're talking oftentimes in Connecticut, and Massachusetts, with people who are investing more in their personal landscape. Um, so the, sometimes those conversations can be a little more difficult. Uh, in New Hampshire, we certainly have people who invest in their, their landscape, and I'm one of them. Uh, I've got over 150 different species of trees planted at my house. Wow. And um, my wife, much to my wife's chagrin, but uh, there is people who care tremendously about trees in New Hampshire, but we're loaded with trees as well. And I think a lot of the things that we understand as New Hampshire residents is the beauty of Mother Nature is with us every day. And um, while we understand that the utility needs to do the work that they do, um, it's more often in, in alignment with what the customer base feels up here, that we're not doing anything out of the ordinary. We're just maintaining the wires. Uh, Connecticut, Massachusetts, there's fewer trees per property, and perhaps those uh, conversations can be a little more pointed, but uh, we also have uh, licensed, Connecticut licensed their arborists, New Hampshire, Massachusetts certify them. We have licensed arborists on every uh, area in Connecticut working for Connecticut Light and Power, what is known as Eversource Connecticut. Massachusetts, New Hampshire, we all have our certified arborists. So we're usually talking with somebody who's passionate about trees. Uh, and if the customer is also passionate about trees, I, I've never found a situation where we couldn't find a way to strike a deal. It's when somebody isn't passionate about trees that um, we sometimes run into a problem. So if the homeowner is responsible for, uh, well, let's, they own the tree, right? And those trees cause outages, you know, where does the liability sit? It's not with the utility, is it? If the tree causes an outage, uh, we have no necessarily no recourse on how to stop that. We would talk to the customer and explain to them that we want to take the tree down or trim the tree to keep it from causing another outage. Um, and generally, that goes pretty well up here. Um, one of the things I wrote in that article about the decline of the roadside forest is all the insects and diseases that are affecting our roadside trees or our uh, our forest in New Hampshire, um, there's significant amount of trees that we've identified as problems. Um, I don't know that we'll um, we'll be able to solve the problem ourselves, uh, but homeowners generally feel like 
that tree is failing. And one of the things we have is the emerald ash borer up here. And I know that's been a big topic for 20 years in, in the U.S., but it's really taken off in the last three or four years up here. And you're familiar with blonding, how the, the woodpeckers go after the, the bug and then uh, make the bark turn a different color. So that's been a real push by the state forestry group up here to let people know that they have that ability to identify that there's a blonding or a infestation because otherwise they wouldn't know. Most people just drive by their trees and or look at their trees and they don't really look up to see how bad they are doing. So till the tree comes down. So have you That's quantified right. this? How fast is this decline hitting you? Good question, Phil. 2015 was the first time they noticed EAB up here. Um, and each year it's gotten worse. Uh, currently, I'll throw some statistics out there that I'm not sure are 100% accurate. Uh, but what I've been told by state employees is that ash is 6% of the New Hampshire forest, but 30% of the New Hampshire roadside forest. And that kind of lines up with what we're looking at for trees that we identify for removal. I would say definitely three to four out of every 10 are ash trees. So it is um, ramping up compared to where it was five years ago. There's a couple that really are a concern for us right now. Uh, one of them is, uh, goes under the heading of WPND, and that is white pine needle damage. White pine is uh, in New Hampshire and certainly in parts of New England. Uh, it is the dominant timber species uh, out of all the species we have in the forest. Uh, and there's about five different diseases and insects that affect the health of the white pine uh, in New England in the last few years. And they just put it under the general heading of WPND, white pine needle damage. Uh, so not much you can do about it right now because they are forest trees. And there's really nothing you can do to treat a tree in the forest. You'd have to treat the whole forest. And um, there rarely do we have a white pine that's uh, one of those trees you say, we've got to save this one. But it is affecting an awful lot of trees in our population. And, and white pines tend to be the tallest growing trees in uh, New Hampshire. They're about 120 feet tall at maturity. Um, so, and many of them in our, uh, near our wires are within the 80 to 100 feet tall. So there's a lot of these trees out there. As they fail, whereas we decide to work with somebody and take them down, it becomes an issue of what goes in its place because nature abhors a vacuum and there's a space now where there used to be a big tree taking lots of nutrients and shading out a lot of other plants. Once that tree is gone, uh, once that tree is gone, we end up with um, a space that invasive species could join, could, could uh, grow in, or that some other species could be planted there that might not necessarily be the the tree that we want near the wire. So uh, white pine needle damage is a big concern for us in the utility industry. It's also a concern for the loggers. Uh, not sure what's going to happen with that. It could become um, a symptom that, or the symptoms of white pine needle damage could become something that becomes fatal to a lot of trees, uh, depending upon the weather and the climate changing. Uh, the other one I want to talk about is really the scariest one to me. And this one is called beech leaf disease. Uh, we've had beech bark disease for years. Uh, beech trees are uh, part of the dominant species in the uh, northern boreal forest, which is oak and beech as the dominant species. Uh, we don't see a lot of beech along the roadside, uh, but we do see them in people's front yards. Uh, beech leaf disease is, and I've been doing this a long time, it's one of the 
the toughest ones I've run into as far as an insect and what damage can be done before it's even recognized that it's in the plant. Uh, so this first came about in 2012, uh, and it has just in the last three years been determined what actually caused it. Uh, it is a forest foliar nematode, and nematodes are a huge family in the world of organisms. There's nematodes everywhere, but as disciplined as people get studying for their doctors or their masters, there's really not been much work done on forest foliar nematodes, just not a, a thing that we've ever dealt with in the past. Uh, so this particular nematode gets into the bud uh, during the growing season and then feeds on the, on the bud uh, during the winter. So you don't know it's there. They're tiny. There could be up to 100, 1,000, uh, I think as many as 1,000 nematodes inside a single bud. Uh, so when the leaf breaks out of the bud and it comes out, the damage is already done. There's no control that can be done to it at that time. And what it does is it <clears throat> it causes banding, what's known as banding, uh, a darker color green in the leaf. And that darker color can no longer perform photosynthesis. So the leaves are not as vigorous as they could be. The tree then loses vigor. And it's it's really a huge problem. Beaches... Um, in parks, cemeteries, um, college campuses, and certainly in, in large homes that have beaches. They are just a beautiful, beautiful tree. There's European beach, there's American beach. Um, both of them get very large, very statuesque, and uh, they don't withstand a whole lot of damage. Uh, so root compaction really affects them, drought really affects them. Uh, but this particular bug, having been a chance to get established since 2012, and then really just figuring out what it was a couple of years ago, and they don't have a registered treatment for it yet. So I'm afraid we're going to lose an awful lot of beech trees. I mean, we lost millions of ash trees during the emerald ash borer infestation over the last 20 years. Uh, beech trees... If you've ever been to Newport, Rhode Island, beech trees are huge down there. They're big trees, and they're a huge part of the landscape. And if they if they get affected uh, by this bug, it's going to really change the whole outlook of uh, of Newport uh, and the tree canopy there. How does it affect the utilities? Well, it affects the utilities because same thing as white pine needle damage. When these large trees go, there's a void, and something else is going to grow in that place could be an invasive, it could be just another tree, but the beech trees have been suppressing growth because they're a very wide crown. They've been suppressing other growth, which uh, helps the forest in a lot of ways uh, because it gives the chance for the timber stand to get mature. But once those beeches and white pines are gone, there's a big void uh, in the forest and, and something will go in there in its place. So uh, the beech tree loss is going to be just as substantial, I'm, I'm afraid. It's uh it's a dominant species in New England in the forest, and it's been a hard time trying to figure out what this problem was. And uh, I don't know that there's anything going to be registered to treat this program, this problem anytime soon. Again, like with the white pine needle disease, uh, there's nothing you can do for forest trees uh, besides treating a whole bunch of acreage. And uh, that's probably not something they're going to do. For the roadside and for the park and cemetery and school uh, beech trees, there is a chance that they can uh, treat them. Uh, they haven't come up with anything that's registered yet, uh, but there have been uh, some trials that have worked on treating the, the beech leaf disease.
We work a lot with uh, the Forest and Lands, New Hampshire Forest and Lands, and the forest health expert, uh, Kyle Lombard, uh, works with us every year and gives a, a, a heat map of what uh, the infestation is for each species, uh, for each insect and disease and where it is, and we're able to overlay that map over our trimming schedule and we can determine where to start, where there might be a lot of damage by a certain bug or disease. Uh, it helps us to go there, uh, working with the state on this stuff, uh, go to that area and start trimming there first. But I'm going to quote Kyle, and he said, um, Beech leaf disease is the next elephant in the room when it comes to overhaul, overall tree health problems in New Hampshire. And that room is already pretty crowded. And to me, that's a quite a statement from somebody who works with forest health all the time. Beech leaf disease is going to cause us a lot of problems in New England. All the utilities will feel it because it is a, a dominant species. Um, hopefully, something will come that will be able to either be a natural enemy to the uh, to the nematode, or they'll come up with a, a treatment that will work. So, uh, have you had challenge uh, convincing your uh, C-suite that w- we've got a problem? In the past, in Connecticut, there was actually uh, what used to be called gypsy moth, now called spongy moth, uh, which tends to explode in populations after drought years. We had five of the last seven years were drought years in New England. And so Connecticut had what they called a two-bug panel. Uh, they put together uh, inter- interested parties from the private uh, community, from the state, and from the utilities to work on this. And this two-bug panel was based on EAB, the emerald ash borer, and the spongy moth. And they started um, taking down a lot of trees, working with the DOT. And it's been a very successful program, uh, getting rid of the dead ash and dead oaks that were down in Connecticut. So when it comes time for me to say, hey, three years later, four years later, it's now in New Hampshire, the same thing. Um, they're not happy about it in the C-suite, but they at least have heard of the problem before. So we're able to talk to them about it. It's more the regulators that I want to understand it so that we can get the funding to to uh, to take these trees down. Bob, you guys share, um, <clears throat> of course, the state with National Grid, right? Your your peer yep. utility. Um, you know what are what are some similarities to your programs? What are some of the critical differences in terms of how you guys manage? Um, you know, similar footprints. Um, you know, how do you guys kind of run your programs, both similarly and differently? Sure. So in New Hampshire, Grid sold to Liberty a few years ago. So Liberty, Unitil, and New Hampshire Electric Co-op are the folks that we deal with, although Grid does have transmission lines in the state. So you're right there, Tej. Uh, and they manage a little different than we do on the transmission end of it. On the distri- distribution end, it's, uh, as I said, Liberty, uh, New Hampshire Electric Co-op, which is not um, part of the regulated group with our Department of Energy and New Hampshire Public Utilities Commission, uh, and then Unitil. Uh, so Sarah Sankovich and Unitil and now um, Chris Maltrup, who uh, took over for Sarah as she moved up, uh, we've always had a great relationship. One thing I did when I came up here was uh, start having quarterly meetings with the other utilities uh, and talk about what we were doing for VEG, maybe who was putting something out to bid, maybe who was going for a rate case, different issues that we were dealing with. Um, so. One of the things that we did at our most recent uh, contract, which I don't believe the other utilities did, uh, was we put a four-year contract out and we asked for fixed pricing for the first two years. That was, The first two years were 20 and 21. So when I went to the regulators to explain uh, what, where we were at, 
Uh, they said, how come you're not asking for more money? And I said, well, we'd certainly like more money, but um, we have fixed pricing for these first two years. So therefore, it didn't jump with the COVID jump like it did with other folks. However, the third and fourth year, we yeah. knew it was going to jump, but I was able to, I was able to, you know, pre-soak them on that. And uh, so that was something that was different. We managed it that way to get the fixed price for the first two years. Yeah. Um, we have 12,000 overhead miles in New Hampshire, uh, distribution overhead miles, and managing a four to five year uh, contract cycle. Um, the regulators currently have us on a nothing longer than 60 months mandate, so up to five years. So uh, when we told them we could keep the prices fixed for two years, they really liked that idea. I believe Liberty and um, Unitil have definitely done multi-year contracts. I'm not sure how they're going in the future on those. Uh, this is the fourth year of that contract for us. So we'll be looking at different ways of doing things next year. And we're also going into a rate case next year. So uh, it be interesting to see the feedback we get on how we did things. What were some of the challenges that you guys experienced by structuring the contract that way? So the challenges that I think the contractors experienced certainly was uh, fuel and supply chain that really affected them. And then uh, that second year, that was something that uh, we heard a lot about. So we tried to work with them um, and come up with uh, innovative ways to to work with them. And certainly the fact that we were having as many uh, failing trees as we were, uh, we were able to adjust our budget so that the hazard tree or risk tree removal budget became more prevalent. It's about 50-50 right now for staying on cycle and for hazard trees. So some of those contractors who uh, maybe were feeling the pinch of unit pricing uh, were able to uh, do more hazard trees that then perhaps they had planned on because the ash, the spongy moth, the hemlock, uh, woolly adelgid, and hemlock looper, and hemlock elongate scale, and uh, beech leaf disease, and all these other things that continue to affect these trees made their, from the work they looked at prior to bidding it, uh, and the health of the forest compared to where they were two years later, uh, they were able to increase revenue by doing more hazard trees. So I think that helped a lot. One of the things the regulators said to us when they gave us this budget after the 2020 rate case was stay on cycle, the rest of the money, whatever you choose to do with it. We're not going to tell you where to spend that money, which was different than they had been in the past. They had wanted us to spend X on what we used to call enhanced tree trimming, uh, which is a larger clearance zone around the backbone lines. Uh, but since I had that um, autonomy to decide where that money was going. I did choose to spend it on hazard trees. And uh, as I said, that helped the contractors. It also helped us. We got a lot of trees down that won't ever cause us a problem. That's usually where the reliability issues are. When the rate cases, when you guys are going through that process, do you get involved in, in sort of providing some education to the regulators in terms of current issues and challenges? And so it's not just like, hey, we're asking for money and it's just a numerical exercise, do you get into the qualitative side of things to help them understand ROI, biggest bang for buck? Do you get that opportunity? We do, and it's been a wonderful situation. It's uh, different than it is in other states, I think. Uh, it's much more conversational, and we are able to have what we call tech sessions, where it's um, either currently with Zoom or Teams, we're doing them. But in the past, we do them in person, and kind of a free form, you can talk about whatever the issues were, and get some of your important points out in front of the rate case so they could understand what you might be looking at. And, you know, I mentioned I've been doing this 45 years, and 
Um, one thing is for sure, I've never seen a tree fall up. You know, if they're if they're failing, they're coming down. <laughs> right. Right. And where if we have facilities beneath them, we're going to have an outage. And I think the regulators, to their credit, and certainly um, they're generous in, in listening to me, is that they have always uh, looked to me to give them any insights on tree um health or tree concerns and what we could do to alleviate some of those concerns. So it's been a very, very good relationship. I hope it continues. I was going to say we were up that way uh, last year and everybody has uh, problems attracting workers, but it seemed a little bit acute right up there in New England, particularly acute. You must have the issue. Anything special you're doing about uh, worker recruitment, retention, the biggest problem we have every day, Phil, is how we're going to get the folks to do the job. I mentioned in that article that in 1982, when I was in college, we had 60 uh, students in the arboriculture major at Stockbridge Current. Last year, there was two. So we're just not attracting people into the wow. field in that way. They might be going to other schools, but, um, you know, tree work is hard uh, and it's in all kinds of weather. And it's not necessarily something you're going to get rich at. It's usually something that you love doing or uh, you're interested in being outside and being your own boss. Um, I think uh, things that we've done have been job fairs, which I think everybody tries to do. We have a really good one with the high school students here in New Hampshire. where We had over 500 students show up for a job fair. We did a little bit of a touch a truck with utility and tree uh, so they could see what the trucks did and how the how the work went. As far as retention for the long term, folks, I used to say this, and and I'm I'm hopeful it it still sounds right. Is uh, grew up in Massachusetts, worked in Connecticut for a long time, and I've been up here in New Hampshire for a while. In Massachusetts and Connecticut, if you're at a family gathering, you're not always going to find somebody that runs a chainsaw for a living. But in New Hampshire, oftentimes you will. Uh, it's <laughs> not out of the realm of possibility that your neighbor or somebody down the road is doing tree work of some sort. And it's always been that way in New Hampshire. There's always been a long uh, history of logging and timber sports even, and uh, most folks feeling like they can do it themselves with a chainsaw. So we find that in New Hampshire, we have a lot more homegrown uh, folks that can go into the field and go into the business. Um, it's still a very, very big challenge. Uh, after that ice storm, we had 75 crews. That was in 2008 every day. Uh, I came up there, and one of the tasks they gave me was to build the, the crew complement to 100. And so we did, but we didn't uh, do it uh, by, you know, magic. We had to put some more money into the business and decide how we were going to help uh, educate folks. We went out to the schools. Um, I have lectured at UNH, UMass, and UConn every year as a guest lecturer, trying to get folks to think about utility as another option. It's never going to be easy, and I think one of the things we've seen in the business the last few years is the prevalence of new equipment. And the reason the new equipment is being built is because we can't have enough people to climb trees uh, and to actually do the work. So this new equipment that gives us access from a driver's seat or from a remote control is probably the best way that we can use it as a Really, it's a workforce uh, multiplier. Um, some of these, whether it's a uh, roadside um, boom trimmer, uh, sky trim unit type of thing, or a knuckle boom crane or a Cinnabogan, all of them have been developed, I think, mostly because we don't have enough people going into the business. That's fascinating that tree work is part of the culture of the state. That I'm not sure I've heard that before. 
for anywhere. Well, so. it's my opinion, Phil. I, you know, I could be wrong. Absolutely. I just think, you know, having lived in all three states, it seems to be more prevalent up here that folks consider it mm-hmm. a, a 12-month-a-year job. Bob, so for you at this stage of your career, you know, you've you've covered multiple regions, multiple states. Um, you know, you've managed big footprints. What would be a what would be the next interesting step for you um, from a career perspective um, in this space? CEO That's of Eversource. <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, I think one of the things that we could look to do, and I would certainly be interested in it, would be to do more outreach with our tree wardens in the two states, uh, Connecticut, Massachusetts, up here in New Hampshire. Do more of that, uh, getting involved with conservation commissions. Sustainability, native trees have been a huge issue uh, through the last few years. We've done a real good job with pollinators. We have a pollinator roadmap that we won an award for. We work with Dr. Michael Durr, who's a close personal friend of mine, and we have put together our 30 under 30 poster, which is 30 trees that only grow 30 feet tall. Uh, we worked with uh, some growers out in Oregon and Washington to tell them which trees were going to be on the poster so that they could start lining out some stock that five, 10 years would be available to purchase in New, Hing- in New England. Um, that type of stuff really gets me excited. We have uh, four utility arboretums here at, at uh, Eversource. And um, I think not everybody thinks of, all of us in the business think we're tree people, but not everybody thinks of electric uh, electric utility folks as tree people. Uh, one of the things that uh, that I believe is that uh, Eversource uh, spends, invests about $200 million on uh, utility arboriculture every year across three states on T&D, and that's about 10% of our operating budget. But I think if you looked at Eversource and somebody asked, hey, do you think... What do you think 10% of that workforce is or 10% of that spend is? I don't think most people would say it's the trees. Uh, and so for me to be able to get out there and continue to to preach uh, what I believe is important, and that is planting the right tree in the right place, discussing what we can do to eliminate some of these tree diseases and insects, that's where I really think the, the next step would be for me if I could and hopefully my boss will listen to this. If I could uh, get a job like that, um, <laughs> that would be excellent. Um, well, one thing's for sure. You're you're putting your money where your mouth is with 150 unique species on your own property. I mean, yep. that is – you might be the first person on, on, our, on our platform that I've ever heard say that. Like, that's, that's crazy. That's a lot. Yeah, Bob, it's um, – First right away in 78 as well. So I came in with you. And most of our peers would have answered that question with something to do with retirement. So you must still be enjoying what you're doing. That's definitely true, Phil. I love this job. I love it every day. There's certainly, we had a storm last night, heavy, wet snow, uh, 5,000 customers out in New Hampshire. Um, and some of those trees that we thought could make it didn't make it just because it was a early season snow and that was really heavy and wet. But, uh, that just energizes us. We get out there and we, and we talk to people and see what we could do differently. We see which kind of species we investigate any outage. It's over a hundred customers. Our arborists investigate any tree related outage. It's over a hundred customers. We capture species, what we think age of the tree might be, uh, distance from the wires, and then we uh, trend all that stuff. So if it ends up that um, what we call red maples or some people call swamp maples are failing at age 
40 to 50, uh, 20 feet from the wires, then we're going to start looking for those when we go out and profile a circuit and see what can we do to be proactive in that space. So that type of stuff, Phil, yeah, it, it makes me happy to do this job. I don't want to retire anytime soon. Um, and um, planting those trees is something that really um, I feel great when I have my hands in the earth. And it's, there's a lot of benefit to me to see what can grow in New Hampshire. Uh, a lot of these trees are trees that aren't necessarily native or even in our zone. So I like to push zones and see what we can do. Um, I probably have spent money wise, more wisely in the past, <laughs> but some of these trees really mean a lot to me to try and get them to grow in New Hampshire and, and see what we can help educate our customers and our nurseries with my, what might grow up here. Bob Allen Arboretum. I'll have to visit sometime when I'm yeah, up. Yeah, same. You're welcome like anytime. It. We didn't even, they've been recognized by uh, Global Leaf Award within the last year or two. and uh, So uh, the Gold Leaf Award is uh, awarded to in, uh, a company or an individual or a group of individuals who've made an impact uh, on the landscape in their area. And it's New England International Society of Arboriculture, New England chapter that awarded it to us for our uh, involvement in utility arboretums. Um, in 2012, we had a uh, a windstorm in Portsmouth at the Urban Forestry Center, and it knocked over a stand of spruce trees, uh, probably 500 trees got blown over. It was an amazing storm. Uh, right there at the Urban Forestry Center, there was now an opening, and I'm on the Community Forest Advisory Council for the state. We usually met at the Urban Forestry uh, Center in Portsmouth, and uh, they asked, what should we do? And we suggested doing a utility arboretum. It was our first one. It was only two pole sections just 100 feet of line, de-energized line, and we put uh, approximately 20 trees that we thought would be good trees to put, put near the wire. So the whole plan before you plant thing, which every utility has been talking about for 50 right. years, we tried to put in action there. Uh, two years later, we have the uh, merger of NU and NSTAR, and our director, Vera Admore Saichi, uh, says, let's have an all-hands meeting. So we had one at the Urban Forestry Center, and she um, saw the utility arboretum as small as it was and, and thought, this is fantastic. And I told her how it came about. And she said, I want you to build one in Connecticut and Massachusetts. And I said, well, I, you know, I only cover New Hampshire. I really don't really have that ability to build it in Connecticut or Massachusetts. And she, she said, all right. And then a month later, she gave me Massachusetts. So <laughs> I was able to, uh, to, take over that and uh, we built one at UMass Amherst working with Dr. Dennis Ryan, Dr. Michael Durr, Dr. Brian Kane, mm -hmm. Mike Davidson, Todd Cornoyer, head of grounds at UMass and we built a really cool utility arboretum there. Uh, seven sections, a uh, thousand feet of wire, de-energized and uh, that really got us started and it's a great tra training environment. We left some mature trees there so that we could teach the students how to prune around the wires. Uh, we planted uh, with both our contractors, our arborists on staff, uh, the students, and the grounds crew at UMass. So really just a great situation. Additionally with that, um, we were breaking down one of our training yards for uh, Northeast Utilities. So all the poles and transformers and wire was all going to be scrapped. I was able to, um, after working here for so long, you know some people, so I was able to make a connection and we're able to get all that stuff brought up to UMass. And then we had apprentices who would never get to build this type of thing live, uh, apprentice linemen. They were able to build this utility arboretum at UMass uh, with the wires and the poles. Um, and a 
you know, a higher education place. UMass is a fantastic university. And we had our apprentices learning there. We had students learning there. We moved that on to, uh, we built two more since then. But the one we got the award for was in Hooksett, New Hampshire. It's the only one of the four that has energized lines. So we don't use it for training as much as we do for um, planting with garden clubs and explaining uh, the right tree, the right place. We have a bunch of trees there. We have over 70 trees there. And it's about uh, 600 feet. So really interesting to do these types of things. The ISA noticed that we had done this. Uh, we had worked with uh, universities, public and private uh, partnership, and, and we were given the Gold Leaf Award, which was really something I would have never dreamed would happen for a utility, and it was very, we're very proud of that. And, yeah, uh, very Our innovative. vice president accepted the award, so, well, thank you. Yeah, our vice president accepted the award, so it made it, it made it real to him. I'd been talking about this utility arboretum and uh, at meetings and stuff, and he never really had any idea what it was going to be. But once he saw it and he was given an award, it, it really hit home for him. It made a lot of sense to the company, and, and we've continued to invest, like I said, by building another one. So we have four now. I'd love to talk about that on another chance, Tej, if yeah. we decide to do that. Oh, no, we should yeah, definitely we'd love do that. To have you Almost, back. I would love that whole I love that whole episode to be totally focused on the utility arboretum. Bob, this was uh it was really great to to get to know you. Um very fresh perspectives. Um congratulations. It sounds like you guys have done a really good job and are continuing to evolve, you know, your footprint. Um and you know, it'll be interesting to watch you continue to create customer engagement, especially given how you explained the different uh, the different challenges with homeowner ownership of tree versus you know state owned trees and, and the complexity around that. So, but you're doing some great stuff, and we really appreciate you uh, spending some time with us today. Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah, We've great. got a lot of topics we didn't get to, but uh, do appreciate your time, Bob. Thanks. That's it for this episode of Trees and Lines, brought to you by Iapetus Holdings. If you like the show, please give us a five-star rating on Apple or Spotify. If you have any questions or comments on any of our episodes or ideas for topics or guests, we'd love to hear from you. Please contact us at treesandlines at iapetusllc.com. We'll chat with you soon.